Hello and welcome back to Brain Dump. So this week we have Mike on the show and he's talking about his involvement and his personal experiences with mental health. Um, the audio quality is a bit hit and miss, but it's all a learning curve and I thought the content was some of the best. So yeah, um, without further ado, welcome to this week's episode. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the extreme. So today on the show, we have my friend Mike. And Mike, I've known you for about a year now, but I still have no idea what your job is. Most people don't actually, and in fact, it's the um, it's the question that I dread the most. So thanks for um, choosing that one first, Connor. Really <laughs> um, the first thing to say is that I'm full time self employed, and the reason that I did that was I, I used to be a teacher and I used to run um, some um, provisions which were exclusively for um, students with mental health difficulties. Um, but I'd also been um, been a rugby coach quite a high level as well, and I did lots of various roles around health and well-being. And so I decided that um, going full-time and being able to um, juggle all of those um, meant that actually I had the freedom in which to explore lots of different things. Um, and I'm quite lucky in that respect because, you know, obviously being self-employed is, is quite a challenge because, you know, you have to get your own work in and do lots of things. But um, it means that I also have control of my timetable, um, which is great. And it means that I can continue um, doing lots of things instead of maybe just being stuck within within one remit. So as much as I don't like to box myself in and um, I also don't like to give the appearance that being self-employed is easy, um, it, it definitely, definitely works for me. That's, that sounds fab. Like, I think that's one of the things... I enjoy about uni is the flexibility mm. of working off my own back mm. so I can get stuff, just smash it done and then have my own free time to do whatever I want. Mm. Well, well you, you say that and actually, I, whilst you're saying that, I'm thinking, I'm not really that motivated like to do any <laughs> to do anything paperwork related so that is a slight problem in the fact that when I'm with people and I'm very lucky that my work is mainly talking to people um, and it sounds like quite jolly really but um, that side of things is brilliant, but it's the it's the paperwork that is a real problem. I swear I'm going to have to employ somebody to literally get on my case because I am the world's worst at meeting deadlines. <laughs> oh, sounds amazing, but it's very stressful as well. <laughs> um, so you predominantly work in mental health. I mean, mm-hmm. that's definitely the, the angle to you that I've experienced the most. Um, so what does that involve? Is that supporting those in need and, and that and the like sure so there's there's a combination of things really i mean one of one of the one of the things that i do is to try and mix up working on sort of like the front line if you, if you will um along with strategic work so part of my role is to try and work strategically within reforming services to make them more um trauma aware and more understanding of how um how it is to experience mental health difficulties and challenges um, and then the other part of my role then is on the front line. So I might be working with the crisis team one week. Um, I'll be working within maybe university settings and within school settings. Um, and then I also support um, support a lot of elite performers as well. So I have a um, about 15 um, athletes ranging from um, rugby players to skiers to goodness knows who else um, who I then um, are there on a charity-based scheme with me, and um, which is all funded. So I support their mental health and some of their sports psychology. Yeah, so you predominantly work with individuals, uh, mm-hmm. and would you evaluate or go into more of what you do with these individuals? Sure. So um, there's there's lots of aspects of individual work. So I might work with um, with patients, for instance, when um, one day within the NHS, um, and I run uh, various support groups. Um, and I also do a lot of um, a lot of work with athletes. Um, so, sort of within the support group environment and within working with patients who've maybe experienced suicidal thought, um, one of my, one of my roles is not necessarily as a clinician. So I'm not clinically trained, which is um, is is interesting when working in the clinical environment because obviously I'm forever learning, and um, that relationship between a clinician and somebody with lived experience but other expertise is really interesting because it means that it balances out really well. Um, and then, so I might be with them. One day and working there my, my role encompasses a wide range of things for the individual but mainly trying to um trying to help them shape their narrative and their, and their resource 
Um, and then along with athletes, one of the, one of the things that I do with them is to make sure that their their mental health is a supported, um, and then also to think about how they approach certain competitions. So not necessarily from a sports psychological perspective, because many people will think, well, you know, performance plan, and you know, will Team GB have all of those things? But what they don't have is support options for when things are not necessarily going well, or when you need to keep them uh, an athlete mentally well. So, for instance, one of the cycles that I see quite regularly is that when an athlete goes off to competition um, and whether they do well or not one of the things which is really difficult for them is to then go on that performance cycle then for another two years because they've just you know they've peaked if you like and, and they've gone through that cycle of trying to prepare for a performance they've done that whether they've excelled or not then they've got to get back on the horse and go for another two years and and psychologically I think we underestimate just what type of impact that um, that those cycles have on athletes you know if we think about them as human beings it's quite an odd thing to have to go through that psychological roller coaster every single week, every day. Um, and often these people are training by themselves as well. You know, they don't necessarily have coaches over them um, and with them 24 hours a day. So it's it's really challenging in that respect. Um, but it's certainly a role that I really enjoy. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, from a personal point of view, I can completely relate to that <clears throat> because obviously I'm a sportsman. I often train on my yeah. own. Uh, and you do get sports psyches who, you know, they... They try to help motivate you, and they try to help you know, you know, help you compartmentalize your life. But mm. there's no one to directly address those negative, you know, mm. uh, feelings and thoughts that you have when when it is off your own back, and you can be really, really isolated. Mm. And sometimes I think the the clinical approach is almost toxic for some reason. I feel like it's so black and white, very uh, frameworked that. It doesn't really work in a lot of cases. I mean, I, I knew that from my point of view, particularly. And so someone like yourself who isn't necessarily clinically trained and therefore doesn't have a direct thinking pattern that, you know, is textbook, as it were, allows someone much more ease and comfort into opening mm. up about these feelings. Yeah, and, and I think I think what's what's really interesting is that there's many clinicians that feel that way as well. Um, in terms of they, they are often bound by systematic thinking rather than you know the needs of the individual, and that's not necessarily their fault. You know, it's, it's important to say obviously that there are some people that really benefit from the input of of clinicians and and benefit from um, clinical support. But any any clinician will tell you that the the best type of care pathway in terms of treatment is a mixture of both social and clinical support. And so we're very good maybe at trying to think about mental health in terms of clinical support, but we're not so good at thinking about it in terms of social. So, for instance, you know, actually what resource have you got around you in terms of friends and family? Um, what access have you got to certain elements of the outdoors? Um, you know, how are you managing to, um, to, to, to be resilient within your, own, um, within your own world and within your own circles? So it's, we're very good at pathologizing things very quickly. Um, but we're not so good at thinking about actually what we're doing in terms of preventative measures for how we resource people. And, and you know, going, going back to athletes and what, and what you've just said, one thing that strikes me in terms of motivation is that we don't understand enough about how people who have maybe historically experienced mental health difficulties, we're not um, very well averse to talking about their difficulties in terms of motivation because but their motivation isn't isn't linear it's not like you arrive at a competition therefore you should be motivated therefore you are that's that's not how it works so for a lot of people that element of motivation is difficult and multifaceted so my job really is to find out exactly um how what their level of motivation looks like um and not to presume that just because they're not you know so they're beating their chest and you know ready to tear out of the room that they're not motivated because for some people it's very quiet because they need that balance in order to maintain that focus in order to perform so it's very diff different as per each individual for sure oh yeah definitely i think as well that um a lot of people who do sport use it as a tool mm. to help themselves with mental health you know issues mm -hmm. that may happen and so naturally your motivation might be in, in deeply ingrained in in the sport itself absolutely absolutely and we we all need we all need those things to be able to regulate our feelings. You know, I, I always talk about the fact that people don't necessarily have the words to express. And, you know, that's that's something that, that I talk about quite a lot. But um, people do feel things physically. 
that's how you know you're feeling an emotion. You feel it physically before you before you put any words to it. Um, and and you know one of the reasons that sport and exercise is very beneficial is that it it also um, helps you regulate that physicality of feeling. But on the same hand, you've got you know the element of you know we also then um, do things that are unhealthy um, in terms of treating our physical um, physicality of emotion, such as um, you know eating. You know, overeating and that numbing. Um, we also do things like you know, there's the self-harming is often linked to that physical need to regulate distress. It's not necessarily psychological all the time. Um, so we have to think about these things from a physical level as, as well as a psychological one. No, I I completely agree with that. I think um, it's it is so multifaceted that it it can be incredibly difficult to untangle. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long have you been been taking up this role for? Um. I I'd always had a bit of an interest in it. Um my my family fostered from a very young age. Um and my um my mother literally came home with a child one day. Um it sounds it sounds worse than it is. I can explain. She didn't kidnap anyone. Um she she came back from a refuge that she'd been working at. She'd been working for women's aid and um, she'd been working with this family for a long time and she'd spoken to the social worker. This boy was gonna be institutionalised and, and she just couldn't see that happen. Um, so they agreed that we could have have this young lad short term, and he ended up staying for about four or five years. Um, and from there, we had many many different young people come to the house who'd all experienced quite early childhood trauma, um, and who had developed various um, levels of mental health needs and um, were in distress a lot of the time. Um, so I decided that my career was going to be sort of dedicated to helping those people that you know felt vulnerable um, around those particular challenges. And so I went into teaching um, and into sport, um, but my my role now for the last maybe seven or eight years has become a little bit more specific in terms of mental health mainly because one thing which i think um i learned very early on from my own lived experience was that i suffered from um from ptsd and depression now i'm not necessarily a fan of labels so i kind of you know saying that out loud still makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable um but i i didn't find it useful to go to any um any set narrative that was already there existing for those things so for example you know there, there are people who may you know google symptoms which is a terrible thing to do by the way um because you you can diagnose yourself with anything but um you know when i when i, when I did some research on it i was thinking well i don't i don't feel like i fit into any of these into these narratives that people are putting out on their behalf or, or on behalf of others so I was very keen to to find my own narrative, which is why I always talk about you know books. Um, I I hated reading when I was younger. I absolutely hated it. Um, and I then came back to reading mainly because of my mental health. And my bookshelf is like you know any any psychology, sociology, um, you know, professor really. There's everything on that shelf. But but what what's on that shelf for me is my own narrative. So each of those pages and all of those different things um, build up the narrative of who I think that I, you know, I am and some of the reasoning behind the things that I do and the things that I think. So I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to push maybe a little bit of a different narrative for my patients as well and helping them to discover those things. Um, and which is why a lot of the work that I do with students is mainly trying to um, explain to them that you know, they, they might be experiencing distress, but half the time it's because they're a human being, not because they're ill. So you know, it's it, it's trying to to get that element of humanity across within within care, um, and I'm trying to reshape what we mean by therapeutic as well. Because I mean, I don't I don't know about you, but when I I always say that the the arguments and debates around antidepressants and medication are useless because they're really binary. They're either you know, or they work brilliantly, or they don't work at all. And in fact, of course, we know it's completely nuanced and individualized. They didn't work for me, but I meet hundreds of thousands of people every single week and day who it really it really works for. Um, but it didn't help me. And and I, what I mean by trying to find alternative therapeutic input is that for me actually, um, walking was really beneficial. Um, and um, things like um, things like yoga. I'm still not able to levitate off the floor. Anything. <laughs> I've been trying really hard, but I'm not there yet. Um, you know, and and not in terms of you know I don't love love it. So I'm not like you know going around. You know, people think are tree hugging hippies, and you know they've always got that in mind. But for me, you know, like things like meditation are really hard. So I don't really meditate because I think like the um, the narrative that I found was right. Well, go and use Headspace for ten minutes, and that will help you. Now, for some people, that's really useful. I find things like you know listening to somebody talk me through what I should be doing really annoying. <laughs> I, yeah. I just I don't find that helpful. So again, it was trying to find that nuance within that. So now I just try to focus on maybe just just clearing my thought and just trying to clear my mind. 
Um, but that narrative wasn't there for me. So, you know, if that's not off the shelf at a time when we're in distress, and if that narrative's not there for people, um, and they've got to work pretty hard to doing that, especially when they're ill, that's really difficult. So it's trying to make it easier for people to access information, if, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think uh, it's interesting how I feel like we're quite similar in the way that we've approached our own mental health mm. uh, in the fact that you... You also copied my haircut as well, oh, so course, I just, I just yeah, want to no. put that out. Oh, you're my idol. <laughs> you, went asked, you went in and asked for my car, which I know you just <laughs> But um, the, the fact that you read a lot and about mm. your own narrative, uh, in the last, I don't know, like six months, I've... I'm very dyslexic, so I've downloaded Audible and just smashing mm. the Audible books. And oh my, has that changed my whole mm. whole yes. concept of myself and those around me? It's just as you were saying about um, I read a lot of sort of Zen books and mm. about about learning the self, and you realise how flexible your own your own conception of who you are can be, mm-hmm. um, and. And that has helped me is just learning about myself. And it, it sounds like you're very, very similar in that regard. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah. yeah. And I think the, the danger, I think, of um, the danger of saying that um, everything is binary or everything is, you know, in its entirety, entirety found in one place is that, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, I pick up a book and I'm enlightened by, by any means, you know, because actually I'm driven by science quite a lot of the time. And so I read something and I think, well, that's absolute crap. I, that's that I know that that doesn't stand and that doesn't exist. So I I like to try and blow theories apart as much as I can. Um, but I take what's useful and leave what isn't. Um, and I think we should be encouraged to do more of that. And it's not necessarily finding those and reading. It's it's through conversation much of the time. You know, I I have various conversations with with patients, with students, with with, with athletes, and I and often with kids. Like really good conversations with kids about their mental health needs and. And I, I, I find that I learn way more from them than they do from me because like I can I can leave a room and I'm like, oh my God, what well, this was absolute gold does. Um, you know, I was I was talking to a um I was talking to a, a family that I've been working with, um, whose um father sadly took their life um very recently. And one of the things that their their child said to me, who was the age of ten, was we were talking about how difficult it is for families to speak about um being bereaved by suicide. And um, one of the things that he said was, uh, you know, well, I'm not able to talk about it very much um, and nobody wants to talk to me about it, but everyone's got an opinion on it. And I was like, well, that's I mean, that I would never have thought of like phrasing it like that, but that's exactly what it is. And to hear it come out of a 10 year old's mouth um, and that that's how he'd been made to feel and actually was the reality for the whole family and many families that I work with um, was 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 really quite moving. Um, so I, I I find that I'm as motivated um, to go into work each day because the people that I'm going to meet um, than 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 I am anything else, and they they are often um, even when they're in places of distress, I find it amazing the type of thoughts that people think um, and the things that they're able to come out with, even in the most challenging of times. And humour is one thing I'm always fascinated by. I had um a patient a couple of weeks ago who was just in a, a god awful place bless them and, and was really really struggling um and and he was he was a student and he um was completely losing it at the time um and and he'd thrown a chair over um and about 30 seconds later he said well that was a bit dramatic, wasn't it? <laughs> just, just, just out of nowhere, I wasn't expecting to say it, and I started to laugh. And, 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 so did he. and that was the best thing for him, you know. It was really therapeutic for him to do that at that time. Um, it sort of distracted and disrupted the, the, the thoughts. And, and it was, I'm always amazed by people's ability to use humour. Um, and I think it's something that we don't, we don't talk about enough, actually. No, massively. It, it's, it is fascinating. I feel like you've uh, taken your own sort of journey and use that as motivation to mm. a help yourself but b help those around you and, mm. I, and it's part of my motivation to this podcast to be honest was get to understand people how what mm. makes them think what makes them do the things they do like you know you know we've got para badminton player like you know with a, a disability like that i'm like i would have just probably just given up by now <laughs> like mm. but mm. you yeah, know yeah. He, he's super driven and i find mm. it so interesting i think some of the best things we can do is just connect with other people and it, yeah. there's no there's no infrastructure there's nothing that mm-hmm. that we have that allows that to take place and it's it, that's partly why uh i really enjoy talking to you is you just make that very comfortable and i mm. think it's it's a difficult thing to do because i feel 
in today's society, it's almost not relevant. There's no value in that. There, there isn't, and I, I sometimes find it difficult to. To, I, I never push my narrative on other people, um, because I think for everybody it's completely different, and everybody is an individual for sure. Um, and I think the moment that I see everything through my own lens and not through the lens of other people, um, and not take a moment to figure out how that how that probably isn't the case for them. Um, I think is going to be problematic. So I think it's very important that we bring our own experience to it, but we're also ready and open and to understand that people might not be in that place at that time. But what what you said about, about connection and relationships is really important because every scientific study that I've ever read, any element of research, talking about you know mental health, talking about trauma, any of those things, is that relationships are really healing. And that, you know, when we think about relationships, we think about romantic relationships. But in fact, the majority of people that I meet who are um, who find comfort and connection through relationships with with a classmate, with with a mate at uni, um, you know, really good relationship maybe with a therapist or, or something like that. And, and they latch on to that and it keeps them going. Um, and so, you know, relationships really are at the core of, of recovery and wellness. But but also. In terms of the structures that we have, that's one of my one of, as as a rugby coach, you know, working with working with the rugby team uh, at the university. One of the things that that I try really hard to do is to ensure that the culture of, of, of what we're doing is is really strong, and that actually, you know, my my players' um, physical and mental health is my absolute number one priority. So it's it's neglectful for me to say, you know, well, you can come and talk to me about an injury. Um, that you've got, but you know, if you've got a mental health needs, I'm sorry, I've got no time to speak to you at all. It's not my responsibility. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Um, but you know, what I'm very proud of within within our club in particular, with the medics, is that um, they they set up families. You know, they make sure that everybody's looked after. They're very vigilant around people's needs, um, and it doesn't take a lot. It's really simple. If somebody's concerned about somebody, they give somebody else the heads up. They make sure they meet up for a coffee. They go around each other's houses. You know, they knock on the door if they have to and bang it down. It's just that element of effort and community structure, which it doesn't necessarily need to be there already, but it doesn't take a lot to build it. Um, and one of one of the things that I would love to see more of is um, is making sure that you know within isolation, certainly within mental health needs, that we work really hard to connect people. Um, I I tried my best at the at the uni to when a student is experiencing something. Um, if I know of another student that's experiencing that, you know, one of the best things that I do is with their permission to, you know, see if I can connect them up to have a have a chat, and and then they start forming their own sort of communities and you know, an an element of of belonging. And I think everybody wants to belong to something, don't they? You know, that's that's why we do sport. Yeah, hundred percent. Sport, performing yeah, yeah. arts, you know, you name it. It's oft, often driven by that need to fit in and that, and that need to belong and to connect. We're, we're very social creatures. Um, and, and I think we, we're at our best when, we're, when we are interacting, when we are connecting with other people. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. Like, I find some of the best therapy, as you were saying earlier, is like when broken people find other broken people and mm. just build each other up. And I find it, it's, it's almost the nature of, say, depression is like a bit of a parasite where the minute you start feeling down, the first thing you do is isolate yourself. Mm-hmm. The one thing that will, that will make you feel really good about yourself is isolate yourself. And I just find that like, it's almost like depression is a kind of living entity <laughs> that wants to just mm. prevent you from doing all the things that you actually feel good about yourself. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I find it really fascinating that by connecting people is a way out of that. Yeah. And, and of course it's, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll, I'm very aware that I make it sound, you know, very simplistic in, in what I've said. It's definitely not that easy. And one of the things that I found with depression was that um, I, I I would often go to um, be able to get out of the house. I was still in work. Um, my my own family members' depression was very different. In fact, they couldn't get out of bed. So I think we have a very singular um, view of maybe what each each um, acute need may look like. But also, you know, it's it's within our within our nature to try and validate what we're feeling. So if I'm feeling, you know, quite low and quite down, then I need to validate that through being by myself. And so we need to confirm our own narrative, which is sometimes very unhealthy. You know, when you're feeling really sad, you listen to a sad song. 
you know you don't necessarily you know listen to listen to a really pumped up dance <laughs> tune so, yeah. you know, because that element of not you know you don't necessarily want to make yourself feel better straight away um you you want to be able to validate your feelings first um and so it's not very easy to move on into that place of, of wanting to connect with people when when you feel you know grief sadness distress etc yeah it's, it is funny how when you feel a certain way some i mean a lot of people say yeah that's okay and that does make you feel a lot better but sometimes it's like yeah me too and it's mm. weird that you know when someone goes yeah me too and it's like i'm not the only one like it's oh, it's, it's unreal how yeah that unity and and you know feeling low is so powerful mm -hmm. and often it's the people that 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 you least expect and and that's that's one thing which you know i wish we were we were more honest about is that it doesn't it doesn't discriminate if you've got a brain you know you're susceptible yeah i find it is always in the strangest scenarios that these 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 breakthroughs of two different people who don't really know each other but let's say and then suddenly there's like this connection of raw emotion and everyone feels so much better for it so yeah 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 absolutely and and i i was i was made aware of a um of a, of, a, of a story the other day where a um where there was a young lad um who was very sadly in, in a huge amount of distress and um and, and experiencing quite a lot of suicidal thoughts and and he'd he'd gone to a particular area of, of the town that he was living in um and a 75 year old woman had stopped him and had a conversation with him um and they bonded over their love of haribo yeah <laughs> they were what? It was, they were like you know 50 odd years apart and they were able to have a conversation because she'd actually been there herself many years ago. Um, and so a complete stranger who had no understanding or no knowledge of where this person had come from was able to sit down on a bench, share a packet of Haribo and relate. Incredible. You know, and and that, was, that was the best possible intervention that you could have hoped for at that moment. You know? yeah. um, unfortunately, you know, he saw whether she's, she's, she's fantastic. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I often find that the people... Um, people actually really want to do stuff for other people um i just think that um narratives um social expectations and the way in which um we're quite isolated within within the modern world i think often um prevents us from doing that whenever whenever i ask people for you know to help me with a particular project or something i'm inundated with people offering stuff um at christmas time there was a family that were really struggling um because of universal credit which is probably wise not to get me started on um they were they had no money nothing um and so i put out a little little post on on, on facebook and i had i had about two and a half grand within you know within about two or three hours of people saying that i'll do this or do that um and so i think people really want to help they just don't necessarily know how and they need to be given the opportunity to do that yeah i know i find that that is incredible the incredible power of people being united mm. um so why do you think we're having a bit of a, a crisis in you know this sort of generation at the moment with so many people so many suicides so many outcry of uh, mental health issues mm. what what do you think is behind this god how long have we got i mean it's <laughs> it, it's it's a really um it's multifaceted and i'm certainly not going to be able to um to explore it in its entirety but one of the first things i would say is that the press don't help with the headlines in terms of crisis um we we might not necessarily there's no evidence to say that we are in crisis with regards to um uh, a mental health crisis as such but what i believe we do have is we have two things we have a lot uh, an alarming increase in people who are in distress um so i don't believe that you know the mental health crisis framed as illness like the press often do is is, is the way to go i mean obviously headlines like antidepressant you know record highs stuff and it's just um but there is, you know, there is evidence to suggest, you know, A in the admissions um, for self-harm um, is, is definitely yeah. um, liaison psych referrals, who uh, the psychologists in the hospital who respond to people who, who, who need um, help when they're in distress. That amount of um, facility is, is, is in increasing demand. And I also think that we have a, I would say we do have a crisis of provision. Um, and we have nowhere near enough provision in this country to support um on a community level on a social level or an acute needs basis um there there are facilities called psychiatric intensive care units where somebody may need to go when they may be placed into section or, or when they're you know in, in a huge run of distress and they're really you know unsafe um and, and need to be looked after and there are times where even for children 
um, where I'm on the phone um, with, with, with bed managers and goodness knows who else across the country. And I can't find a whole bed in the whole UK sometimes. What? That's you know, that's, that's how bad it is. Um, or the very least, I have to transport them at least 350 miles away, you know, when they're in absolute huge amounts of distress. That, that is just criminal and, and it's horrendous. I, I think that some of the element of um, cop-out, if you like, um, is for people to blame it on social media. That quite annoys me. Mm. Um, because I do believe that you know social media, in terms of comparison, is not healthy for people's minds, for sure. However, um, there is no evidence currently that exists which says that social media is you know, making things worse than before, if you like. There... There was a really good example of social media use at Christmas, you know, with a with a join in campaign with them with Sarah Milligan, you know, with trying to tackle isolation at Christmas. I thought that was a brilliant idea. So there's you know, there's many ways in which actually it's it's really useful at bringing people together. But to to get back to the question, I think the the alarming increase is down to people who are in distress and not able to access the right support at the right time. And uh, not able to access early intervention, not able to access preventative measures. Um, and what what fascinates me is that there are often times um, within a patient's history um, where they would have really benefited um, from just a conversation. And I often you know, talk about people move from a place of wellness to stress to distress to illness. And actually, it's not necessarily the case that people jump from one step to another. It's often a graduated process. Even the people with, you know, who are really chronically ill and really need a lot of support, they don't just arrive there. You know, there's 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 normally a, a pattern. And and I think that the this the element of suicidal needs that we're seeing. Um people think that suicide is again a symptom of illness. You know, people think you have to be ill to, you know, experience a suicidal thought. Um and I always use the comparison, you know, People, pe- people are often in a huge amount of distress. The people that I've been, you know, um, with in a moment of crisis have often lost their job, have come out of a relationship, you know, huge amount of debt. You know, there's loads of different things. Um, that doesn't render you ill. That just means that at some given point, the situations come along that you don't know how to respond to, and it places you in a huge amount of distress. Um, and and the real, the real obvious thing to think about with that is that actually there are. There is a lack of resource um, because the conversation hasn't developed enough towards practicality um, for when people experience that distress. So the majority of people I, I, I speak to tell me that they have no idea what they should do when they experience that because the conversation never reared its head. And all the other element is is that the conversation has reared its head, but it's not got to the point where actually they know what they should be doing or the conversation hasn't developed um, past, well, it's, you should just talk to somebody. You know, the, so it's very simplistic. So people say, you know, all the mental health campaigns that I hear are, you know, we we need to talk, we need to talk, we need to talk, which is which is really important. But what what that, those campaigns don't do is then give people the words. So don't give people the narrative or any elements of listening skills or anything like that in order to to come back with that. So I think the 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 narrative is very simplistic. And one of the best things that you know that that we did recently, and I was very lucky to be a part of it, was was launch a um a website with um with with a safety planning feature on it um called um stayingsafe.net and on that website it talks about how you can make a safety plan and, and what to do in those times of distress and gives you a resource to go to and um, that should have been done years ago we should have had that absolutely years ago um i'm grateful that we've got it but people um i think are just terrified often because when somebody expresses that you as the person being on the receiving end i've been on the receiving end and, and on the per- and on the side of somebody of, of me saying it to someone um and it's terrifying thoughts somebody harming themselves or or wants to take their life but what's really what brings me back into work every day is that the questions that are often asked to, to patients and to people um that i that i speak to within this line of work is that people don't necessarily want to die people just sometimes want to break from their distress and and actually that's a really important distinction because people don't necessarily realize that obviously you know suicide is is definite um and uh sorry infi- infinite not definite um so that distinction pushes back to the point that actually it's a need of distress that we're seeing so there is something that we can do about it 
It's quite a long answer. Isn't no, it? it was amazing. <laughs> I love that. All Very long that. answer. No, it, it's it's interesting. I've, I think I've said this to you before, but there's a difference between wanting to die and not wanting to live. Yeah. And I think sometimes you know suicidal thoughts or death is very much like a a quick fix a quick mm. you know escape uh from the current situation um and it is it is obviously you know a permanent thing but when you're in that place you just want that current situation to just stop mm. and that's logical oh yeah of course like it it makes sense like i mean i've been completely you know completely level-headed and fine sometimes and you do get like oh what happens if i uh jump off this really high place like yeah pure like curiosity more than anything exactly and you think um you know when you're in a time of crisis those thoughts are oh that would actually be quite nice you know and i think mm-hmm. that's obviously we that scary thought but sure. it doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know like it's that that person's doomed it just means mm-hmm. that we need to eat, alleviate the what else is going on in their life absolutely and behind behind every behind every um person that i've that i've spoken to around um experiencing ideation or thoughts of thoughts of self-harm there's always been a really good reason never i've never really met anybody who hasn't really had a logical reason as to why they've ended up in that place and and, and so for me um you know if there's if there's a if there's a route and there's a path then that means that we can bring them back to a safe place so actually as much as it's obviously you know nowhere near um, healthy or, or positive that they're in that place. The fact that there's a route that they've travelled means that we actually have a place to start. Um, which is why I often talk about the fact that you know, um, you can save a life right up until the last minute. You really can. Um, and and I believe that with with the right amount of training, with the right approach, um, with a compassionate intervention, passionate conversation, um, we can we can really start to to make headway. I mean, one of the one of the things which which has really given me a lot of hope the last the last six months is how many um how many students have been really actively involved with supporting one another in terms of safety plans um and you know i i i give i give my students the the lowdown on on what a safety plan looks like and how to do it and you know i've, I've had students come up to me and said you know i sat last night with so and so and we did a safety plan together and that's that's where we have to be really positive and really proactive about not holding all the tools ourselves and actually that safety plan doesn't need a clinician to do it doesn't need anybody with any clinical training at all it needs another human being who can sit down with them and go through those questions because the whole point of it is it's produced by that person and it's co-produced with someone you trust so it's no good me holding on to those tools or anybody in A&E or any psychiatric facility it needs to be out into the community so when that filters down once we give people not just the, the words to say and the words to use but also the practicality to go with it that's when we can really work preventatively. Yeah, no, and I, it's interesting what you say about sitting down with someone you trust, but also them doing it themselves. Because I think, like, I've been in a doctor's room when they, you know, make you tick the questionnaire and it's awful experience. Hamilton, Hamilton scales. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I just think, like, uh, why hasn't this been done before? Like, I don't know. I think you're really innovating the 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 way to treat people in in distress and like you know really and and i say treat because that's the wrong wrong uh word because ultimately it's just help it is literally mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i feel like there's a difference between treat and help and i think that that is the difference is uh, treating someone is very clinical very you know mm-hmm. you, you just think hospitals and doctors and stuff when actually a lot of the way out is just you know, walking the path with someone and, you know, encouraging them along the way. I'm glad that you're still here and I'm glad that, you know, we can support and just those words sometimes, just just holding that space with somebody who's not going to judge you and it's going to be there to 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 actually hear you properly. Because too often I think we get into that element of fixing it. You know, people often say things like, you know, for instance, if you lost somebody, if if, if you've been bereaved, you know, people sort of, you know, say things like, yeah. <laughs> You need to just cling on to the good times, you know, just remember the memories and stuff like that. And they mean well. And at least they're not crossing the street and avoiding you, you know, at least they're at least they're engaging with you. But but people don't know what to say and that they feel that when someone's in distress, they, they can't sit with them and just hear somebody being vulnerable. They have to go to that quick fix because it's uncomfortable for us as human beings. 
Um, but what, what I've learned in, in my work and what many people tell me and what other people um, tell me in terms of how they've supported others is that just being able to sit with somebody in a time of immense stress or vulnerability and not offering to make them a sandwich or you know try and make them feel better and to just really actively listen and empathize and relate is the best thing that you can do yeah and i think uh it's interesting what you're saying about vulnerability because i think there's a lot to be learned about vulnerability like i was saying this to a friend of mine like um being vulnerable and learning how vulnerable you can be is actually just a massive strength it is a huge like armor to know the darkness within you Mm -hmm. because then you know it's almost like yin and yang like if you've got this massive darkness you know there's huge amount of light that can come out of this but i think a lot of that comes from learning it yourself Mm -hmm. but also being there with someone when when you're vulnerable is although incredibly hard Mm. is so powerful and but not in a not in a forced way not in a go to therapy or counseling in a just with a friend or with Mm. a loved one or whatever just it's it's fascinating it's like a a superpower that we've not really you know it is it is i i i'm very aware that when you know if if i do any sort of media or any podcast or anything like that people sort of some of the comments i'm very fortunate to get are things like you know well you you know you seem like you've got things together and you know you, you you seem like you know what you're doing and, and and I always say to people, I've got no clue what I'm doing today to do in my own life. I mean, I'm very good at helping other people, but I've got no idea what I'm doing myself. And I get back and sit on the floor in the kitchen and cry and, you know, with crisp crumbs all over me and, you know, looking absolutely stale, snotting to my jumper. Um, and 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 I I remember doing that once. So I was just in complete mess and, and just sort of falling apart. And, and I'd tried to run from vulnerability all, all of my life. And it always caught me up. And um. And, and and my brother came over, fortunately, and um, and sat on the floor. We had one of the best nights we've ever had. And it was kind of like being drunk on vulnerability. Yeah, on it was really yeah. weird. Um, and and we just sort of, you know, had a really good chat. And um, I was just like, yeah, I just I, I, I just need to say that. And I probably need to say that for about nine, ten years. And actually, that's really useful. Um, and and, and, it, and it was great. But that the ability to be vulnerable um, and the power in it and the learning experience from it, I think transcends anything that that as men um in particular that we've been fed before in terms of narrative no no sporting achievement no professional achievement has ever come close to the achievement of being able to feel vulnerable identify it um and be able to move past that but also hang on to the onto the value of being able to go into that place again oh definitely I think uh it's it's funny how you were saying about humor um earlier and i find that whenever i'm vulnerable and in an absolute state afterwards you can just laugh at it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it is like it is it's an amazingly powerful place to be in that very exposed very you know self degrading scenario and then mm-hmm. you look back and go no that was so worth it like <laughs> yes. yeah absolutely yeah yeah i my, one of my i lived with um my brother for for ages i i'm a i'm a runner um in the athletic sense sadly but more <laughs> in the um more more in the case of you know when things get tough but i'm i i'm yeah, you know, i'm yeah. out the door um i'm not just like a walk but i'll get in the car and i'll just drive somewhere and you know i think i'll book a hotel and i i go to like you know, thinking right i'll get on the plane to so and so i haven't got a suitcase but that's fine i'll buy clothes at the other end and you know before i know it i'm like going to vietnam or something without any idea of what i'm doing <laughs> oh, um and and I, I know that after about 50 minutes once i've driven to st Andrews car park and you know stopped there and really got my stuff together and you know bought a picnic bar um i'm i'm all right but you know i go back in and you know my brother used to be like oh how far did you get did you get to bristol airport this time <laughs> what flight were you on and you know who what, how many pairs of boxer shorts did you manage to pack in the 30 seconds before you ran out? No, just and it, and it is quite funny being able to laugh at it and it's very important that you, that you laugh at it for sure um but but fortunately I've, I've got people around me who um who are very supportive so i i think that it's that's that's what motivates me in terms of my work much of the time is to try and be that support for the people who haven't necessarily got that resource oh it's certainly i think um it's also is that's the value of uh understanding people and mm. understanding like certain people like we all react in very very different ways like i go really quiet and i just you know isolate myself and i'm just grumpy the whole time uh and i think those who know me go oh 
Connor's being a moody bum, like mm. he's biting everyone's head off. But they know that the reason I'm doing that is because I'm hurting inside and I just need a big fat cuddle and that's mm-hmm. that's the end of it. Um, but it is also important that when you recognize that in yourself to, you know, laugh at it and go, hold your hands up and be like, yeah, I was von- I was feeling really vulnerable and it was really important for me that those people pulled me out of that hole at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that just to finish that thought, I think that um the words you use there, react, is really important because um I think we are sometimes in the habit of um not separating people from their behaviour. Um, you know, I always say that, you know, when I, I try to be quite calm and quite measured um and and methodical and, and, and thoughtful in my approach much of the time. I'm certainly not like that when someone cuts me up on a roundabout <laughs> right that, that opens at the window. I behave in ways which are completely um against my against my values and, and goodness as well else. Um and every human being's got the ability to do that. But I think we, we sometimes are very um we're in danger of not separating people from their behaviour. And when you believe that somebody is disordered or when you believe that the fault is within them rather than be able to appreciate that they're not necessarily their behavior at that moment in time and that they're reacting to something rather than being an inherent uh, an inherent driver i think is really important um i spoke to a zoologist student a couple of um a couple of years ago i'll never forget him talking to me about um about his time on safari and he said um he was talking to me about you know he said i know you talk a lot about behavior mike and so he said i thought it might be interesting to talk about this giraffe that, that we saw i'm like God, a giraffe! Story. I can't, I'm going to be able to feign interest in this. Um, and he, um, he was telling me about this giraffe that was behaving really oddly. Um, and and I said to him, so so how did what was the process of identifying you know, what what the problem was? And he said, well, first of all, you know, we sort of checked to see if the giraffe was under threat. Um, we we looked around and couldn't see anything you know, that was obvious. Then we looked at had his basic needs been met? Did it have access to water, food? Um, did it have access to community? All of those things. Um, and then we went through maybe two other things, and then eventually we ended up with a giraffe and worrying if maybe there was something wrong with the giraffe. And I thought, that's really interesting because with people, we do exactly the opposite. We start with the person and then work our way out. You know, when in fact, the majority of people I meet are reacting to things that are five times removed um, from themselves in terms of their circumstance, their, their access to resource, their ability to, you know, to, to be able to thrive, all of those things. But often, you know, as people, we're very judgmental and we go straight into there being something wrong with the person. Um, and I think one of the one of the best skills that that my my parents and my environment growing up taught me was that people are very rarely their behaviour, very rarely. Um, and so I try to bear that in mind. Um, I can't say I manage it a hundred percent of the time, <laughs> but I try. But I try. Yeah. No. And I think yeah, it's it is fascinating how. I, I don't know, maybe it's the, the English upper nose that we uh, don't want to share emotions. And and I think that might have something to do with it in this, this culture, for sure. But it's it's still apparent in, in just anyone, really, like mm. that we, yeah, we it's like a, not necessarily a blame game, but it's, a, oh, there must be something like this. And I don't know, it's more almost like a self-protection thing that, mm. you know, if if they're having an issue, then it's quite possible that you could have an issue as well. Like the same circumstance may arise in you at some point. So it's better to make sure that they've got the problem and it's not you. And I think that's much easier to self-justify where you like ship ship the cause on to mm. something else uh, than it is to, you know, look around and, you know, really, really dig into it. Absolutely. And, and the, I, I mean, I, I'm Welsh, so I don't know if I suffer from the English. Um, <laughs> I had to get that one in there somehow. Um, but but it's, culture plays a huge role. You know, I mean, um, where where I'm from, everybody knows everybody. And that that is a bit of a hindrance. Sometimes I don't really go back home very often because, you know, God, everyone knows my business and you know, they're going to notice how much weight I've put on and then that's going to go around the whole of the town. And, but there's some benefits in that, in that, you know, when people do stop and speak to each other and, you know, there, there's really that element in community. Um, but cultural references are very important with regards to mental health. There's there's a a psychiatric institute over in New Zealand um, who take their patients walking, canoeing, climbing, all of those elements. You know, they really embrace the outdoors. And these are people that are under section. You know, these are people that you know in this country wouldn't dream to let out of the facility. They've got they've got a gym in their facilities in New Zealand. They've got all these different aspects, and we're just starting to to discover that. So cultural. Um, Cultural barriers are very, very um, significant with regards to actually 
um, the impact on people's mental health. And, and I think we've come a long way in this country. Just the fact that we're having this conversation you know, this, this evening it shows that we've come a long way. I think we could go a little bit further. Um, and I think that going a little bit further could be that we move past our own discomfort. Um, moving past our own discomfort means that we can then hopefully alleviate other people's. So that that's my hope anyway. No, I think I think that's a very powerful motivation that you've got there. Um, on a final note, what do you think people can do on a day-to-day basis to either encourage someone they know who uh, you know is going through a difficult time to you know alleviate their pain, or what they can do for themselves? Mm. I mean, there's 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 so many things, and of course, it's um, not necessarily able to. Um, to be accessed at that moment in time for sure you know there's there's lots of different things we talked about the barriers of depression earlier for instance and low mood but one one thing i would say in terms of looking after one another is to be really vigilant and um, to ask the question why um one of the one of the things within the student demographic that i, that I constantly talk about is that you know if you're if you're out on social um and somebody's not drinking you know that's that's often the case with sort of you know we we react to go oh why aren't you drinking and you know boo and all of that stuff um and actually, for many people, you know, their relationship with alcohol can be really difficult. And people are often on medication, which means they can't. Which means that, you know, actually, we should be a little bit more informed and think, well, that that's possibly a red flag. You know, I might need to just check in with them and see if they're okay, maybe. Um, in terms of in terms of what we can do, um, I, I'm a big believer in um, trying to not work everything at the same time. Um, distraction for me is really important. Um, I I have this weird um, kind of existential thinking where I feel absolutely connected to everything in the world, and I feel like it's my responsibility, which can be draining at times. Um, you know, I've only got to see something on the TV. I mean, you chuck Bambi in front of me, and I'm an absolute mess. <laughs> but like any, I, I've I've got quite a quite a connection to other people, and one of the things which which I have to do quite regularly is to just check in with myself and. Um, just be aware, again, sitting in that place of vulnerability, just being aware that I'm feeling something, but not necessarily need to label it right away. Um, I can go days without knowing what I'm feeling. I, I know that something's happening, but I've got no idea what it is. Um, and I think sometimes we can rush to labels of, you know, I need to label it as sad, I need to label it as angry, when in actual fact, it's a mixture of things. Um, so I think the way that we talk about emotions is, is really important. But, you know, my tips for maybe a, a conversation would be, you know, I talked about listening. Um, we often see it played out i ask you a question you come back with with something and then about a minute in i then instruct you oh yeah yeah yeah. so so there was this time and you know i start talking about something and and actually i've just cut you off from you know from the person i need to talk i've just completely interjected and that's mainly because we want to hear our own voice so we have to be very active in terms of our listening allow people to hold that space we don't sit there and say nothing by any means but just being very attentive and maybe um Maybe not having that conversation face to face as well is another thing. People sometimes, um, you know, tell me that they text their housemate maybe the day after because they've noticed that something's not right. And actually, over a phone, it's easier. Some people have left voice notes for them. Um, so it, it it all depends on on the circumstance. But I think there's just being vigilant, um, and just being brave enough to have the conversation. Really, has the question: Have you thought about um suicide or? Um, you know, are you low at the moment? Really, have people got very angry when you've asked that question? You know, the best possible answer you can have is no. <laughs> like, and if that's the worst it can get, I mean, I've asked that question before and people have been like, um, no, why are you being so weird? Why are you asking me that? I'm like, great. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That's a brilliant response. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's those those conversations and in terms of how they can be framed um, and, and safety planning, which, you know, I mentioned the website earlier, that's a really important source, really yeah. important. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. My mouth's dry from talking so much. <laughs> it's great. I'm I love sure. it. I'm sure. But yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure. Um, thank you for having yeah. me. All right. Cheers, mate.